Well, I'm excited to uh, draw your attention to the last part of Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 12, and uh, specifically verses 9 to 12, uh, which is not the whole uh, ending of this very profound chapter and book, um, but uh, we're going to look at this in two parts. So we're, we're looking at part one now and part two next Sunday, but I trust that, uh, that you will that you will be um, blessed as uh, we look into these uh, important verses together. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 to 12. I want to say first that uh, items uh, bear the warning label, handle with care for different reasons, as you may know. And those who trans are in the transport business know this all too well. Glass, for example, is fragile and can break easy if it's not handled right. Ammunitions can also explode and take out the truck and the driver. And that would be a tragic thing. If I had to put a warning label on the Bible, it would be this one, for sure. Bible, handle with care, right in the, right in the front. And I say that because gla- like glassware, it's delicate. Maybe you've never thought about this before, but but it is. Anyone can use it, but not everyone will use it correctly. Not everyone will cut it straight or interpret it aright or communicate it in an understanding way. And the language of the Bible, you see, is complex and it's beautifully designed. And it takes a certain expertise to bridge the time and culture gaps in order to capture its enduring meaning for modern listeners. Not everyone does that. In fact, I believe that perhaps even the majority of Christians out there have difficulty with this. Without the knowledge and hermeneutical skill then, the Bible expositor can make the Bible really say anything he wants and destroy its beautiful message. It's delicate. Interpreting the Bible is that delicate. The Bible is also like ammunitions or explosives. Handle it correctly, and it'll lead to eternal life. But mishandle it, and it will condemn you to death. Several Old and New Testament passages promise us that that we cannot add or take away from the words of this book without severe consequences to ourselves. Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, is the most famous among these passages. It governs not just the book of Revelation, but since Revelation is the last book of the canon, it, its warning governs the entire Bible. And we're not to add or to take away from God's holy scripture. <clears throat> this internal warning is self-explanatory and it's warranted. We Christians are all about truth, right? We're about God's truth. Because it's our lifeblood, Old Testament prophets call us to ingest it. Paul calls us to wash with it, to renew our minds with it, to edify and evangelize with it. We teach it, we contend for it, and we expose error of false teachers by it. If we had to boil it down, this um, the, the Bible's exhortations, that is, if we had to boil it down to its simplest form, I would say it's this. Know it that you might live it. That's it. Know it that you might live it. Learn and do 
Know and apply. Biblical knowledge leads to biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom. And uh, that means living uh, God's wisdom. It's a very simple message that sadly the church continues to get wrong with each new generation. The Westminster divines knew this and and they produced the Westminster Confession uh, of Faith. With it, they also produced the larger catechism, which is a very clever way to learn the confession so that the church would get it right. Of its 196 questions, the first half is devoted entirely to doctrine, to knowing. Know the scripture. This is what it says. The second half is devoted to the application of that doctrine. And the short preface to this second half of its applicational section says this, quote, Having seen what the scriptures principally teach us to believe concerning God, it follows to consider what we require. I'm sorry, what they require, end quote. So they require us. Or that is to say the, the principles of scripture requires us to live them. So the first question and answer pair that has to do with the duty of man goes like this. What is the duty which, with, which God requireth of man? The answer, the duty with which God requireth of man is obedience to his revealed will. Now, Jesus summed up the revealed will of God in the moral law of God, if you remember, in Matthew 22, which we know as the Ten Commandments, and of which the larger catechism sees two purposes. Two purposes. Question 96, what particular use is there of the moral law to unregenerate men? The answer is the moral law is of use to unregenerate men to awaken their consciences, to flee from the wrath to come, to to drive them to Christ, or upon their continuance in the in the estate and way of sin, to leave them inexcusable and under the curse thereof. That's one use. Here's the second. Question 97. What special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? Answer. It is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. Now, Our focus this morning, as I say, is chapter 12, verses 9 to 12. And it highlights the importance of applying God's truth for wise, godly living. Just like the Westminster Confession said. And that's really what we're all about. It is calling us to know this truth in order to apply this truth. Therefore, I would say... The last part of this is that it is our responsibility, therefore, to handle this delicate and formidable word carefully because it has the potential to be misunderstood and to condemn. Handle the Bible with care. Here's the thrust of this chapter or this passage. 
I'd put it this way, godly wisdom, when communicated correctly, builds us a biblical epistemology. So handle it with care. That's it. But there's a lot there. These verses are among the final words of the sage, and they're what he would like us to take away from his book. So let's unfold this message a phrase at a time. The first thing that we we know and we start with in first part of verse 9 is this. We have the correct wisdom. We have the correct wisdom. The sage, is, the sage has given us biblical wisdom. He identifies himself in the very beginning at verse 9 as being wise. Do you see that? He says being wise, speaking of himself. And you might think that, well, that's somewhat conceited. But it really shows humility. Huh? How does it do that? Well, you see, the sages of biblical Proverbs believe that God called them to the position of spokesmen to impart his wisdom to his people. They believe this. To give their credentials is not a prideful thing, but it's a humble thing. They saw it as an awesome responsibility. And we know that they believed their very words were scripture and that their collections were canonical. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, they knew that what they were writing was scripture. In fact, the book of Proverbs, just for example, the sages there call their sayings law, that's Torah in Hebrew, and commands of God. They claim to speak the oracles of God and to have his inspired utterances. This was their claim. And their appointment to this position then obligated them to handle God's word with care and accuracy. Our sage did just that. And he did it not while patting himself on the back, but with humility and fear and trembling, the same way pastors should when they answer the question, what do you do for a living? It, would be, it wouldn't be conceited or prideful at, uh, for any of them to say, well, I have the awesome responsibility to shepherd God's people by showing them how to live God's truth. That's an awesome and even terrifying responsibility. It's not for nothing, you know, that James cautions his people in his congregation, not many should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. I remember, the feel, I remember feeling the weight of this responsibility early on in my pastorate. The first time a church member told me that he had responded in the way that he had to a particular situation as a direct application of what I had preached the week prior. He said, as you always say, Pastor. And I thought, wow, people are not only hearing me, but they're following my applications. That's a scary thing. you get, you got to get it right. God holds shepherds accountable to be right, to get it right. In fact, he, he called Ezekiel to warn the exiles, do you remember? Or else he would be responsible for their physical deaths. This is why God, through the prophet Ezekiel, blasted the false prophets of Israel for misleading the people. And why Jesus, with equal force, blasted the Pharisees. And why Paul blasted the Judaizers. If you're a Christian, a pastor, elder, a deacon, a missionary, 
or just a member in good standing, you have the responsibility to be faithful with what God has given you. That's your new life in Christ, your possessions, your time, your money, and also and especially the Bible. How do you represent the Lord's truth by the way you speak, by the way you live? Some of us some of us may bear a higher degree of responsibility with regard to God's word than others, but we all bear responsibility to handle God's word correctly, all of us. No exception there. Jesus has given you the authority, in fact, in his name to tell someone that he's going to heaven on the basis of his genuine profession or that he remains in his sin and his condemnation if he rejects Christ. You have the authority to say that in Christ. That's an awesome responsibility. Now, our sage is someone who claims to have the truth about life. And more than this, the application of that truth. That's his claim. He has wisdom for life. And that's a precious thing for anyone. People would be lying if, if, uh, if they told you that they, they weren't interested in knowing reality or how best to live it. They would be lying. There's, a grand, there's been a grand attempt on the part of people ever since the fall of Adam to capture reality by simply creating it for themselves. So many belief systems out there, so many ideologies and philosophies of life swirling above our heads, all claiming to have the truth to provide an accurate view of reality, whether they are formal religions complete with their own dogma or traditions that have been passed down and preserved orally or philosophical maxims, you are what you eat, or just plain feeling and intuition which seems to rule the day. Most of these hold to no moral absolutes and are purely relative. Everyone everyone is right in his own eyes and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And for us in this country, that has prompted a redefinition of most things. Things like marriage and family and gender and pandemic and vaccine and racism and environment and fossil fuel and public education for children and cows and their flatulence and the latest household gas stoves. All of this has been redefined. They're not what you ever thought to be true. Without the truth about reality and the ability to apply it, people are left to their own depraved desires, and life becomes more absurd by the day. Verse 9 starts us off with a God-appointed sage who possesses absolute truth and the skill to apply it for wise living. That's it. And he offers it to his son and, and to his listening audience. And we have before us biblical wisdom. That is correct wisdom. We've got it in our possession. It's wisdom that Paul would later identify as from above, from God, not human. And it's such a breath of fresh air that wafts into our polluted atmosphere of relativism and postmodernism and coexisting, of counterfeit truths all claiming to be right and good and necessary, 
a smorgasbord of life options, all of which are ways that seem right to humanity, but in the end they lead only to death. Now, why is this so important? Why is it so important to have the right view of life, of people of God, the, the end of judgment and eternal life, of morality and immorality, right and wrong? It's a fair question. Well, the rest of verse 9 answers that question, and it answers it this way. It's because a correct wisdom will lead to or build for us a correct epistemology. That's why. It says the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Now, we've used the word epistemology many times throughout our study of Ecclesiastes, and for good reason. It is a technical term that means how I know what I know to be true. That's it. But it's a lens through which we determine how to respond to life. If you have a wrong view of life, if your truth is counterfeit truth, your response to life will be wrong, pure and simple. Contrary to popular belief, there is a right and a wrong way to live life. There is moral absolute truth. We need the correct truth, the proper biblical lens to interpret life correctly. Now let me show you how I get this from verse 9. Our sage says he pondered, searched, and arranged many proverbs to teach the people. I love this, this part of the verse. It's, it's, it's so compact. Ponder we understand. He pondered. He thought about it. Now, God did not dictate his truth in every instance, not even in most instances in the Bible. And Ecclesiastes is a good example. God did not dictate what the sage was to write. Rather, the sage, along with many other biblical writers, wrote from their heart. But their heart was guided by the Holy Spirit, so what they wanted to write was exactly what God wanted written. And I can't explain it any deeper than that. That is what the doctrine of inspiration is all about. Now, our sage pondered his experiences and the observations that he drew from them. Then he carefully searched out how to interpret these experiences and observations. And then he arranged his interpretations into carefully worded proverbs that would communicate biblical truth and how to apply that truth as Proverbs are known to do. Now, it's true that everybody can draw their own interpretations from his experiences and observations in order to capture some lesson of life. People do that all the time. But without absolute truth, no one has any guarantee that his interpretations of his experiences and observations of life are at all correct. No guarantee at all. Only those who have biblical truth as their lens can evaluate and interpret life experiences and observations can get it right. Oh, there are times when, when the world gets it right. Yes, those are times that are few and far between and they're clearly accidental. It's, it's actually those times that I like to say the world has caught up with the Bible. That's how I put it. What the sage is doing here is very important for us. He looks at life the way we should, 
not from intuition or gut feeling, not from tradition or philosophical inquiry, but from a heart of covenant faith in God and his word. So essentially, he puts on the glasses of covenant faith in order to see clearly how to interpret his experiences and his observations. Beloved, that's the only way anyone can have a correct understanding of a fallen world that is run according to God's decrees. The only way. How else can you understand the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering without God's truth? To explain that, we know from the first half of Psalm 73 that Asaph took his glasses of covenant faith off. And when he did, he had a skewed view of life. It became absurd, unexplainable, dark, and miserable. Why are the why are the, the, the wicked prospering and the righteous suffer? Am I doing all this for nothing? When he put the glasses back on, he then understood reality and his hope returned. At times, our sage takes these glasses off to reveal just how absurd life is, but he quickly puts them back on because it's too dangerous to live without it. Yet, as... And, and here's a startling statement. As many of you may know, Christ, most Christians look at life without the glasses of covenant faith on. They don't have them on. They don't even know where they are. In all my years of ministry, it seems obvious to me that genuine Christians who claim to love the Lord lack wisdom. They lack a knowledge of sound doctrine. As we often say, a theology of. They don't have that. A theology of prayer, a theology of parenting, of youth, of trials, of finances. And the skill to apply that biblical knowledge to everyday life. They don't have that. And this is so sad because only Christians have the ability to know and apply the Bible. But they don't. Why? Why don't they? Well, some are lazy. Some are just lazy. They, they've always hated studying and researching and reading. Yuck. They just want someone to tell them what to do. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. <clears throat> Others are caught up in this mystical, sensational circles of Christianity, thinking that what they believe isn't right if they're not telling mulberry trees to be uprooted and planted in the sea. So they fool themselves into thinking that God bypasses his holy word in order to whisper in their ears knowledge that only they can know so that they can be prophets and tell other people in the church how to live while they themselves don't even know a shred of doctrine to live by because they've never studied the Bible. Still others listen to secular authorities are duped by the latest movements and fads. We know them today. We we'll don't have to reiterate them. They take ideas about life from their own lifestyle and read them into the Bible rather than take truth from the Bible and read it into their lives. Now, this is a, there's a subtle difference in those two approaches of the Bible. I want to just belabor this a little. The right approach goes to the Bible, the divine story extracts truth from it and incorporates it into life, the human story. And the goal here is to align our individual life stories with the divine story. 
the way it should be, the way life should be. God says, that is what a godly wife is. Am I that? Well, I'd better change. Well, that's what a godly husband is, according to the Bible. Am I that? Well, I, I better align myself. But many, you see, <clears throat> don't do this. They don't go and find a, a work ethic in Colossians chapter 3 and then make sure that their work ethic aligns with it. No, rather, many start with themselves first. And they take the elements of their story and they read them into the Bible, the divine story, in order to validate their thinking and behavior. Do you see how that works? It's a subtle difference. I don't judge people. Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged. I don't judge people. Or, my boyfriend and I live together because we love each other. And the Bible does command us to love one another. So, there you go. You see the difference. Now, we've said that the sage has correct wisdom that will establish for us a biblical epistemology, a lens. We know from verse 10 that this is accomplished only when this wisdom is communicated correctly. We've got to take biblical wisdom. We've got it there. We have the content. We have to, cre- uh, we have to communicate it correctly if we're going to build this biblical epistemology. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. There's actually more going on here than you think. In other words, the sage sought to express this godly truth in a way that was aesthetically pleasing and that conveyed the correct meaning. He searched for just the right words to use that would accurately express divine truth. And this verse is concerned, you see, about two aspects of communicating biblical truth. And it should be the concern of anyone who teaches the Bible and uses the Bible to counsel or disciple others. The first aspect has to do with finding words that would be aesthetically pleasing to the disciple. This has to do with form that the sage takes here. This is the form of his exposition. That would be, in his case, wisdom literature. He would express truths in proverbs, in word plays, with figures of speech, and in comparisons that are all typical of wisdom literature. And he and his interest in finding pleasing words was not to produce some literary masterpiece, although Ecclesiastes is that, or to write something that would sound flowery when read, or even more remote, to use language that the Apostle Paul would later describe as tickling the ears of his listeners. Absolutely not. Actually, it's, the, it's quite opposite of that. Wisdom language does have a utilitarian element to it. That is to say, it's a, there's a profitable element to wisdom literature. It, it's useful for something. And it's useful specifically because of the form it takes. Here's how. It's authoritative sounding, since wisdom literature assumes the context of a teacher instructing a disciple. Right? Read Proverbs, you'll see. 
It's relatable since the teacher speaks from his experiences and observations. We've seen that in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's reliable since his experience and observations about life are interpreted through the lens of covenant faith. It's memorable since it casts truth in curt and pithy sayings. And it's heartfelt since its poetic nature takes us beyond the mere meaning of words to the sensations that they create in us. Biblical wisdom is a type of literature or a genre that communicates very well. Let's not underestimate the various forms or genres in which God chose to communicate truth. Wisdom literature is just one of them. But they're very powerful. Very powerful. And it is interesting. I'll point this out. I found this reference in the first uh, article of the 1689 Confession called the Holy Scriptures, paragraph 5. It speaks of the Scriptures, The in speaking of the Scriptures, I should say, the divines refer to Listen, quote, the heavenliness of their contents, so that's the content, and, quote, the majesty of their style, end quote. Isn't that interesting? That last quality refers, I believe, to the various genres that God used to communicate his truth to us. You have law and gospel and historical narrative and hymnic literature and parable and and a whole host more. And this is how God, this is how God relates to us and teaches us and speaks to us through these various kinds of literature in the Bible. And we would do well to make use of them as the situation arises. Now, the second aspect that the sage is concerned about when communicating biblical truth is that his words would preserve truth. And that has to do with his content. So we just looked at the form. Now we look at the content. His content is accurate. It's correct. It's indisputable, irrefutable. And because he writes, he's writing God's very words, it's morally absolute. What we have in wisdom of the biblical sage is the norm for living. It is the standard for living. Trust God. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways. He will make your path straight. That's an example. The form and content of God's word, what God says and how he communicated it, they go together. Both matter. Paul spoke to the form of biblical truth when he talked about its being seasoned with salt and gracious and wholesome words that are designed to convey truth that fits the need of the moment, that it might benefit those who hear it. That's Ephesians 5.29. Correct wisdom, when communicated correctly, will build in us a correct epistemology, a lens through which we can discern and understand reality. And verse 11, for the purpose of godly living. For the purpose of godly living. Godliness is the end result of biblical wisdom. Look at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads. The masters of these collections are like driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. The sage's overarching purpose in conveying the shepherd's wisdom, I believe 
he is referring to God here, God's wisdom, to his son, to the people that he teaches, that will build for them a correct epistemology, is that he might direct them into godly living. This is such a wonderful verse that captures the goal of Bible teachers. Whether you're a pastor who is an under-shepherd of the chief chief shepherd or members of a local church engaged in meaningful one-anothering, the whole point of teaching biblical wisdom is to help believers apply God's truth for godly living. And I want to open this verse up to you a bit more because it's so impressive. The Hebrew word behind the English translation, goad, it occurs only here, so it's hard to be precise about its meaning. But we're pretty close to the meaning because we find a related word that means cattle goad in 1 Samuel 12, 21. talks about a cattle prod. And that confirms our translation. Now, a cattle goad or an ox goad was a long stick about six feet to ten feet long with a pointed end, and it was used to prod an ox in a particular direction. The pointed end meant something to the ox because while it never hurt the animal, and we know that to be true because you wouldn't want to injure your only means of plowing, uh, but and oxens have pretty thick skin, I think it's fair to say. So the poking would do little more than just cause them aggravation. But it aggravated them enough to move away from it. So the farmer directed the animal to the left by prodding it on the right side. And he moved it to the right by prodding it on the left side. And moved it ahead straight on by prodding it in the back. Most animals, you see, move away from pressure. So this is how farmers steered their oxen. The sage mentions divine nails, which were spikes, much like those used by the Romans in crucifixion. The LXX translation of this verse uses the very Greek word for nails or spikes that the Gospels use for the spikes that were driven in Jesus' hands. Now, of course, the sage is not talking about animals or nails, and neither am I. Remember, his words are pleasantly constructed to communicate to us the accurate meaning of God's truth, right? So, these are metaphors. They're pleasant ones. They communicate. What he means by these two metaphors, then, is that the words he teaches is applicable and relatable, and he teaches them in relatable ways, they have content that prods his disciples in the direction of godliness. The content of his message, communicated in just the right way, prods his disciples in the direction of godliness. They goad them to apply God's truth for for godliness. More than this, he and his co-sages who where masters of proverbial collections are like nails that drive into one's mind memorable and sometimes painful truth that will transform their behavior. With both these metaphors for instruction of biblical wisdom, the late Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner said, they spur the will and stick in the memory. That's true. A large part of shepherding is seeing the sheep in the right direction. And the sheep, sheep, 
or a shepherd rather, goads with the very word of God. And it's sharp, right? The word of God is sharp. Sharper, in fact, than any double-edged sword because it pierces to the very recesses of the heart and will have its way there. God's truth can be painful to hear sometimes, like when it convicts, whether we're talking about believers or unbelievers. And when it convicts, it has its way. It will not return void, right, without accomplishing its goal. Apostle Paul's testimony to King Agrippa in Acts 26, great example, Paul mentions in verse 14, we all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. An unbelieving Saul, whom God was about to save, realized that as much as he hated Jesus and his church, he would find it impossible to ignore the truth about Jesus. It prodded him to faith and repentance. When God calls a sinner to salvation with the prodding of the gospel, the sinner will come. God will use an an accurate gospel message to bring a person first to have godly sorrow for his sin. That's the painful part. And his desperate position before a holy God. And then second, to repentance and faith in Christ. That's a godly direction. And God's word continues to prod us even after conversion. I'd only focus on Romans 12, 1 and 2 as an example for this. It's a testimony to how God, how God uses truth correct, correctly, or how correct truth, uh, God uses it to keep us from being conformed to this world by human wisdom and rather transforms us to greater godliness by the renewing of our minds. That's what godly wisdom does. His nails are the under-shepherds, the pastor teachers, the Sunday school teachers, the members of a local church who, who disciple and mentor godly parents. Even in mutual iron sharpening that takes place between two mature believers, sparks fly. And that's a good thing. There can be a, a measure of pain that comes with conviction of sin, even sins of omission. That is, sins that we're unaware of that we are committing. God's word is a light that illuminates our hearts. It exposes our motives so we know which ones to act on, which ones to jettison, or which ones to repent of, as the case may be. This is all part of the spiritual prodding, all part of spiritual growing pains that we feel as God conforms us more into the image of his dear son with the cattle prod of his word. Sage now brings everything together in verse 12. If we have our, in our possession correct wisdom, the wisdom from above, and interpret it correctly so as to build a right epistemology by which we can live godly lives, then we must make every effort to handle this wisdom with care. And that's really the punchline. We need to handle it with care. Verse 12 warns us not to abuse godly wisdom. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless. The excessive study is wearing to the body. Now, at first glance, it may seem as though the sage is, well, against writing and studying many books. 
a wearisome practice, to be sure. But this isn't at all what he means. He's just finished talking about biblical wisdom. It's not, it's not relative, certainly not, uh, I'm sorry, relative. It's not human, and, it's, and it's, it's from above. It's absolute, this wisdom. It's what God has provided for our proper spiritual health and growth. So it only makes sense that this warning is against tampering with the word of God, God's wisdom. It's against abusing it. Abusing it. How do we abuse it? Well, by not accepting it as the only word for life and godliness, or by editing it editing it in order to fit our life context, as we talked about before, or maybe even adding to it. We certainly don't need to hear other philosophies of life or incorporate the best of of other worldviews in order to get ourselves the fullest orb view of life or reality. Absolutely not. The Bible gives us an accurate and perfect portrait of the way life is and how to become godly. And it's not compatible with any other belief system. It's not compatible with secular psychology, with Eastern mysticism, with Western religions, with ideologies of the naturalist. God's truth is a standalone canon of divine commands and principles communicated in various literary forms that is totally sufficient for life and godliness. You don't need anything else. You don't have to go find anybody that will give you secret knowledge. No, absolutely not. I cannot tell you how often I've witnessed Christians running after all kinds of secular truth because, well, it spoke to them. He's talking about my situation. And they found it relatable. He knows what I'm going through. All because they hadn't been instructed in solid biblical wisdom from their local church elders. Our confession that we read every Lord's Day together gets right to the point in its statement on the Holy Scriptures. It says nothing is ever to be added to the Scriptures either by new revelation of the Spirit or by human tradition. As if that were even possible. We have all we need for life and godliness, Peter said, in the knowledge of the Son. Now, I want to wind down our study by confirming our principle from the New Testament, specifically from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First five verses, uh, th- this is a remarkable parallel. Paul says in verse 1 that he came to the Corinthians announcing the mystery of God to them, which according to chapter 1 would be specifically the gospel. That's God's wisdom for life. Paul even calls it God's wisdom in chapter 1. Right? So we have God's wisdom in the form of the gospel here in this situation. He also tells us from verse 1 that he labored to find just the right words to use in order to convey God's wisdom. Isn't that remarkable? You can get, you can get the content of the gospel right, you know, but the way that you present it can actually detract from its content, as we all know happens, and it did. We've got to be very careful. Paul did not come, he said, with brilliance of speech or human wisdom. His content was God's wisdom of the gospel, and he conveyed it without the spectacular oration typical of the great orators of his day. 
Verse 2 gives us the specifics. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. So that's the content. Here comes the form. He limited himself to the content of the gospel. And then in verse 3, I came to you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's the form in which he communicated the content. That is, the way in which he spoke to them was not with emotionally charged words or with any kind of theatrics designed to manipulate people's responses. The first century orators knew how to push people's emotional buttons with their languages and draw them in. They were very good at it. Paul refused to do any of this. If your conversion is true, it will be because of the gospel, the content of the message, period, and will have nothing to do with me at all. That's why God gets the glory and the credit, and we don't. And we know that they criticized Paul for not speaking this way, saying that he had a weak presence, says that in 2 Corinthians. But Paul came that way, and also with a great sense of fear and awe over his responsibility as a messenger of the gospel to convey it correctly. Paul was just a voice, so that, verse 5, your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. We know that the gospel introduces the convert to a new epistemology that leads him into a life of godliness. What a parallel this is. Well, we're not surprised, because Paul, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, no doubt knew Ecclesiastes very well. Brethren, Take care, Paul says. Take care in the way you handle God's word. And the assumption is that you will handle it. That's not the issue. The issue is whether you handle it accurately and carefully. There are plenty of people in churches who claim to be Christians and that have a close or claim to have a close, intimate walk with Christ and never crack the Bible open. And this is to their shame and to their spiritual detriment, not to mention they are quite deceived about their intimacy with the Lord. But you, you pick it up, you handle it, and in so doing, you need to handle it correctly. This is God's word we're talking about. This is his wisdom. It's correct. And it's your wisdom in this age. It's your glasses to help you see perfectly, to help you see what's right. Apostle John has these words for us at the end of his book, the end of the Bible, and let it serve as an appropriate and proper ending for us today, if anyone who hears the words of, his, of this book adds to them, God will add to him terrible plagues that are written in it. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in it. So says the Holy Spirit. Our Father, we are grateful for this timely word and we do pray that we will will be ever so diligent to cut the word straight to 
bathe our study in prayer and to use all the appropriate means necessary, all the hermeneutic skills that we might possess, that we can extract timeless truth, the enduring principle, that we might be able to put it into our lives for godly change and then go and put it into the lives of others for the same godly change. This is our desire and is all the more pressing for us, O God, in this age and in this age of, of compromise and apostasy where the word of God means very little. We pray that we will stay the course, that we will study to show ourselves approved, that we may live Christ accurately for your glory and for your honor and for the benefit of your church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.